This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hi guys, it's Chris from Offscript. In this edition of the podcast, we are talking to the man who helped bring down one of the most infamous drug lords ever, El Chapo. It's in conversation with a former FBI undercover agent, Michael McGowan. The Big Interview with Offscript. His story is a quite remarkable one. He spent 30 years as an FBI undercover agent. He targeted some of the most sophisticated, dangerous criminal organisations and individuals in the world. Everything from international drug smugglers to the Russian mob to outlaw motorcycle gangs, as well as mafia bosses. He actually infiltrated not one, not two, but three families on the East Coast. He actually spent 10 years of his life infiltrating. He probably knows our previous guest, Michael Francis. He does. I Does mentioned he? Michael Franzese because it was, uh, I think it was a week after we'd spoken to Michael and I referenced Michael Franzese and he did say, yes, I'm aware of that gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's remarkable about that to me? You said he's, he's infiltrated three different mafia families. How does word about him not get out? I asked him that question. He was at pains to point out that three different families, family in Boston, family in Rhode Island, and a family in Philadelphia, which exactly... Not you enough think, connection. You'd think there would be some... Con- connection that might happen by chance, I, I right? I was exactly the same. And he said, no, I, it was done all. He, he did speak, and, and you will hear as we get deeper into the El Chapo apprehension about him, you need to build a good backstory. And that's where he made his name in the corridors of power at the FBI. He became known for building watertight backstories, which, of course, help you then live out your life in undercover. He is also author, and we'll get to this as well, of Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover agent. That was a bestseller. I should also point out as well, it it piqued the interest of a certain Sly Stallone who has bought the rights to Michael's story and that is in the works. So Michael did say expect to see that. Obviously COVID-19 has maybe played its part in slowing that down but Sly Stallone is adamant that he will play Michael in an upcoming uh, silver screen adaptation of Ghost My 30 Years as an FBI undercover agent. Now of course a lot of you will be tuning in. I know Robbie's particularly excited for the El Chapo story but it's very important that we give you a bit of context to Michael's life. We said it there, 30 years in the FBI. He was a regular cop. He was following in the footsteps of his father, his grandfather. He would tell me as well that one of his two sons has also gone into law enforcement. So it was in the blood early on. And he actually said that getting into the FBI wasn't necessarily a dream of his. He was working on a very high profile bank robbery case and he was approached by a FBI individual who said, Michael, you have uh, someone that stood out over the last few months. Have you ever thought of actually trying to get into the FBI? He said he did that. It took him two years and eventually he became an FBI agent. So long before El Chapo came, and again, you've got to stick with us for this because his El Chapo story is quite remarkable. I wanted to get an idea from Michael. I said at the top there, he's done an awful lot of undercover work, whether it be organised crime in the US, Russian mobsters as well. Give us some high profile cases that Michael had worked on long before El Chapo. When you first enter the FBI, uh, you do what's called, you're a case agent. You run cases, you run investigations. So I started as a case agent like everybody else in the FBI. And luckily I was put together with with other good agents and and happened to have some good cases. So very early on in my career, I did a lot of international drug work. Um, We made some seizures out of Pakistan in the 90s in the States. Uh, Between two cases, we seized about 
uh, over $400 million worth of heroin. They were high-profile cases at the time. Uh, But while working those cases, um, those were undercover operation. And as a case agent, I became interested in the role of the undercover agent who actually has the physical and personal contact with the subjects or the bad guys. So I transitioned fairly early on in my career from a case agent to become an undercover agent. Once I became an undercover agent, um, I had the fortunate uh, experience of infiltrating different uh, mafia families, the LCN, the mob. Uh, I infiltrated three different mafia families three different times over the span of about 10 years. That was extremely interesting. Those are some cases that have probably been known to the public. And I didn't want to get pigeonholed as just a organized crime or a mafia undercover. I wanted to work different violations. So, you know, I, I picked assignments where I could do different things, such as drugs, organized crime. I got into some violent crime, undercover operations. Just, I always was looking ahead to the next one. While I was doing one, I was always surfing out there and seeing what else was coming down the road to do. And I just, I don't like to use the word addicted. It sometimes has a negative connotation, but there are good addictions. Uh, I prefer to call them challenges. They're good challenges, and I always was trying to challenge myself to get the next good undercover case. He doesn't sound like an FBI agent there. He sounds like an actor. He doesn't want to be pigeonholed. Yeah. He doesn't want to be typecast. A one-trick yeah. pony. <laughs> and, and, I, and again, I've had to chop this up for, for the purpose of, of radio, but I, I was flabbergasted at that, and we spent 10 minutes because I was like, you were undercover, your, your life is on the line, and yet you've got one eye on what's next I, that couldn't compute with me because you would think certainly from your Donnie Brasco's and that of this world once you're in you're in yeah there's no and also he seemed to portray a lot of enjoyment for it he loved it yeah, uh, and, and I, loved I would it. imagine that it's it's a life that's just fraught with second guessing and paranoia and just fear that you're going to get rumbled basically yeah. what, how could you even take time out to relax and enjoy it yeah it seems really anxiety inducing but the fact that he sort of revels in it but as anybody in any career doesn't want to get bored the idea of almost finding you know oh well this is my second or third mafia infiltration case i need something new seems absurd lcn i assume that's la cosa nostra and then the mob i mean he's just juggling little (laughs) mafia acronyms around he's the fbi's go-to guy is what he became as he said there infiltrated three different crime families over a 10-year period on the east coast of the united states so how did he ensure that well, his real identity was never discovered. Without revealing any tradecraft secrets or any giving any hints to the other side, <laughs> uh, you, you prepare yourself. And again, I learned this by osmosis from agents before me. The FBI only started doing undercover work in the mid-70s, and I came in in the mid-80s, so I was just behind the curve, and I learned from the first generation of undercovers you know, how you go about setting your fictitious businesses up. There's a million different tricks to it, which I don't reveal because there are obviously agents doing this right now. But there's a way that you can create an identity for yourself, which you have to think of it as peeling back the onion, how how much they want to delve into your background. And a lot of it will depend on how they uh, 
how they assess you from the get-go. So if you give them a reason to look in your background, eventually they're going to peel back the onion far enough to realize you may not be who you say you are. But if you set it up properly in the beginning and then you execute it uh, when you go live, a lot of it is is learning to operate in that environment. I grew up, as the book says, I grew up in a blue-collar environment. I grew up with... Uh, you know, cops, firemen, blue-collar workers. So I was around guys who chose to do things and go down a different path, which I very easily could have done myself if I chose to. But I knew I was going to get into police work, so uh, I always felt comfortable in that environment. I've, I've been around um, people who have uh, probably crossed over the line more than once uh, from basically from the time I grew up until I entered police work. And then once I get into police work, I was fascinated by the other side. I always tried to figure out, I tried to think and act like a bad guy when I was undercover because uh, I had been around them so long. So it really wasn't a big leap, I think. I, people always ask me, you know, how could you have infiltrated so many different groups? I'd like to think it's because um, growing up and the experiences I had as a child and, and growing up kind of helped me along that way. And it's weird because when you see in the films, you always see the good guy who's undercover is always placed in a predicament where he has to really do something that's bad. Yeah. And often he go he makes a judgment call that he goes, okay, I'll go along with this if it's a robbery or whatever, because I need to maintain my cover. So there's actually not that much when you're undercover and you're acting like that. It's a very fine line. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely it is. And I actually put that question to him and he said that his moral compass never did deviate. He was adamant on that front, that he was never asked to do anything that would be crossing a line. Because, well, compartmentalising it all, that was a question I wanted to put to Michael because, as I've already alluded to, he is, in a lot of ways, playing the ultimate actor role. You know, if they hand out little gold statues to these guys, you know, forget your Daniel Day-Lewis's and your method acting and your, Gar- I was about to say Gareth Bale there, your, uh, what's his name, Christian Bale? Sorry, people on the mic. Forget those guys. I think Gareth Bale's much of an yeah, actor. Yeah, I don't think he is. But forget your Leo DiCaprio's in that of this world. When you really think about it, this is life and death for someone like Michael. He is putting his life on the line to be, he's acting. Essentially, And you don't get a second cut. No. I mean, you make the smallest of mistakes that gives people a tell because it's so easy to read people. Absolutely. The moment somebody acts a little bit strange or unusual, your ears prick up. Absolutely. So Especially you- when you're in a life of crime. Exactly. So these, these criminals, they're probably, they're, their senses are, are hyper because they're trying to evade capture at the end of the day. And, and you've touched on it already, Sono, dealing with that mentally. How did Michael go about separating the two lives that he led? So my answer to that is I've you know I've done I've done a number of speaking engagements obviously since the book came out. You have to remember I also kept my mouth shut for 30 years. So I'm I'm only talking about things that have already worked its way through the court system. Yeah. I'm not revealing any any inside information. So basically what happens when you have that double life it is a psychological challenge that's part of the uh, interest that I had in it psychologically how you basically you spend your whole life on the straight and narrow to become a cop or an FBI agent, and then they expect you to be as bad or worse than the people you're going up against. That's a very dangerous psychological game for some people. But I learned very early on, I called it the switch. Um, And what I mean by that is where I live, when you leave the major city, 
that I work in is a huge bridge that I cross. And I use that bridge as a marker. So when I went out of the city and crossed that bridge, I switched over to dad, coach, um, you know, dog walker. And then when I went into the city, that's when I switched to crime boss, drug trafficker, et cetera. And that was a physical landmark that I use, which sounds stupid maybe to most people, but it, it worked for me because if you're not careful, you can blend your, you blur your two, two lives together. And I just made a point of when I did go home or when I was able to go home that, you know, I wasn't going to drag the job home with me. I tried to uh, isolate my family from, you know, what I did for a living just so we could have, I didn't want them to worry or think about what I was doing when I went to work. How dark did it get, Michael? What kind of positions did you find yourself in? What kind of uh, an environment in terms of the things morally, ethically, the things that you were being asked to do to maintain cover? I mean, give us an insight into how yeah. that works. Again, again, that's what people have a lot of interest in. Let me, let me, let me make it crystal clear to your listeners. I never once in 30-plus years of working undercover had trouble remembering who I was. I was an FBI agent. I was law enforcement. I wasn't a criminal. I wasn't a bad guy. My ethical compass was bright as day to me. But you get put in situations. You get put around a lot of money, a lot of women, a lot. You know, there there are temptations when you do this because you're supposed to be one of them. But you know that ultimately you're going to appear in front of a, a jury, in front of a judge, and the FBI is very strict on their rules of undercover operation and what you can and cannot do. There's, there's this mythical uh, idea that the FBI can go around using drugs and killing people, blah, 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 to maintain your cover. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we have very strict legal guidelines we have to follow. So getting back to what I said earlier, if you prepare the case properly and you learn this by doing it over and over again, if you learn to prepare the case properly, you don't put yourself in a position where you are going to be challenged in that way. Inevitably, something's going to happen, and you have to talk and think your way out of it. You can't fight your way out of it. You're normally outnumbered 10 to 1. So you have to use your brains and your mouth and not your gun. That's powerful stuff. Do you think you could have an exciting day at work or a difficult day at work and then go home and not be able to talk about that, it? That, that's where he lost me a little bit. I, I just can't fathom that. And it's very important at this juncture to point out that his wife, Michael's wife, knew that he worked for the FBI, knew he was undercover, but had absolutely uh, absolutely no clue as to how deep it went and some of the nefarious characters mm. that he did deal with. His kids, on the other hand, had no clue. They knew daddy was a policeman. They had no clue that he was undercover because as you will hear and we're going to get to El Chapo over the course of the next half hour and bringing down the most infamous of all drug lords as you'll hear from Michael some cases he'd be away three, four days sometimes it was months at a time and the big reveal when he did eventually tell his wife and his kids the full story about what he did that's not to be missed you'll hear that before six o'clock it's not the kind of thing you can pop on Instagram stories it certainly isn't no, it really isn't (laughs) mad day at the office (laughs) dot, dot, dot Crazy undercover work. With a selfie of him in El Chapo. That's, that's not working well. The Offscript Podcast. I wanted to get a little bit more on that because he did mention the word discipline. What did that mean? And Michael had this to say. We basically mirrored their organization. So if Chapo was at the head of their group, I was at the head of our group. So my underlings, in theory, basically my three other FBI undercover friends, 
we were all in a pecking order and I was at the top. So they set me up as their chapo. So when I would meet with these other Sinaloa members, they would literally stand up when I walked into the room. <laughs> there was a Pavlovian dog response. And I would, I would dress immaculately. I would dress as you would expect a crime boss to dress. I wouldn't speak about crime or criminal activity to anybody but Manuel. So I'd be standing there with some of them, and I'd be social, I'd be polite, but I, I was on a different level from them, and that was how the, that was the plan, and that's how the other, other undercovers arranged it. So when I came to a meeting, that's when important things had to get done. And again, because I was talking to Manuel, who would go back to Mexico and meet with Chapo, we would get answers directly from Chapo through Manuel. So we didn't have to worry whether we were dealing with lower level members or intermediary members. We were basically talking boss to boss. So that was the, and again, I, I compliment my three partners as just setting the table so perfectly that when El Viejo showed up, you know, something important was happening and that's where we collected the greatest evidence. He makes it sound so routine, yeah. but it just cannot have been. He must have been on tenterhooks the whole time. Uh, anyone that's just tuned into this, this is not a movie. This isn't the script of a movie. This is real life. This is Michael sitting down, acting as a crime boss from Naples, from Sicily, from Europe, sitting with one of the head honchos for El Chapo, the Sinaloa cartel. And despite being one of those quote-unquote good guys, he in a way is experiencing the same hit of power, the same kind of things that El Chapo is yeah. getting out of his position. He's getting to live that power of being a drug lord. He is. Or mafia boss. And there is a very famous story that I had to pick up. I had to delve a little deep into my research for this. But a story that did the rounds was that he actually adorned a purple velour bathrobe in one of his meetings with the Sinaloa cartel to throw them off the scent a little bit. I wanted to find out, was that true? Absolutely. People ask me about that all the time. There's a video, which I promise you, you'll never see. <laughs> but there's a video of it. Uh, and what happened in that day, but again, getting back to the psychological aspect of this job, when you're, when you're negotiating with the Sinaloa cartel, if they think you're the cops or they think worse, you're the FBI, you're probably not going to get anywhere. So you tell me how many crime bosses are going to show up in a purple velour bathrobe to negotiate. <laughs> but I just, that just came from years of experience. My team was tight. We were nervous. It was the first meeting. And I had dressed up in a very expensive suit and watch and the whole nine yards. And I went into the use the men's room and I saw this bathrobe. And instinctively, I just said, no way he's going to figure this out. So I slipped on the bathrobe and I did the entire meeting in the purple bathrobe. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And that was the first meeting with the Sinaloa cartel, was you wearing a purple velour bathrobe. For four hours, yep. It's like Scarface. It is. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's eccentric, is what it is, and the fact that it just came to him. And you know what? Again, you, you know, we, we, we've 
talked sport and we've spoken with so many great sportsmen and women over the years you talk about being tight the, 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 I guess the mark of a good leader is being aware of what your team is and he said it was our first meeting mm. the guys are a bit nervous I just wanted to do something that would relax them and his way of doing that was sporting a, a purple nervous. wow <laughs> a bit nervous like yeah, you said there the FBI no one from the FBI is doing that no. right only somebody with the extreme confidence and power who can do that exactly do that we fast forward then to the day that the deal is agreed three years in the making it's over in Madrid Spain the deal is agreed with the Sinaloa cartel we got 350 I think it's 346 kilos of cocaine in Spain at a port in Spain in July of 2012 and you have to remember we spent three years setting up this pipeline that they thought they were going to be supplying Europe for years so we had the Sinaloa cartel members, again, Chapo's still a fugitive at this time. He's not going anywhere. But we had his executive board come over to Spain to celebrate the first deal with us, thinking we were going to do deals for years. And that's when we arrested them. So how did that day unfold? I met with Manuel for three hours before the arrest on video, going through every piece of evidence in the case step by step. So he sat down with me and, you know, basically buried buried everybody with the evidence we had collected. He buried everyone, including El Chapo, with that. It was on camera. I should also point out, and Michael's at pains to point out, it wasn't as if Michael went, ta-da, you're arrested. He is the ruse. He backed away when the guys were at the hotel. That's when the FBI, with Spanish authorities, swooped in to arrest them. What role then, and we'll finish here, and I've got a lovely little tale to tell you at the end of this, what role then did Michael's case that he built against El Chapo, what role did it play in his apprehension and subsequent conviction over in the U.S.? We had an indictment out of the District of New Hampshire. That's actually where we prosecuted them. So we had an indictment. Obviously, Chapa was still a fugitive, so he wasn't involved in that um, in that trial. We had, a, we had a trial up in the state of New Hampshire where I mentioned Chapa was one of his attorneys, went to trial, and we convicted him. And then what happened was there were a number of cases around the United States um, that had Chapo in their indictments. There were cases out of Chicago, Houston, New York, but there was probably seven or eight cases. The difference with our case is we had actual simultaneous contact with the Sinaloa cartel. So the other cases made indictments based on historic, they're called historical indictments, uh, the use of informants, the use of former members. Well, we actually had the evidence of direct contact with the group. So all of that all of that evidence was supplied to the Department of Justice down in Washington and they uh, elected to have the case Chapo's case uh, held in New York. So he went to trial in New York as you know was con- convicted and sentenced to the uh, the Supermax in Colorado here in the state. So he's he's not getting out of that prison, I can guarantee you that. You know, he may have got out of two Mexican prisons but he's going to die in a, a U.S. jail. He certainly is. He is serving a life sentence at the ADX Florence Supermax Prison in Colorado. The worst of the worst are there. He ain't going anywhere. And Michael McGowan, it was, who played his unique part in bringing down El Chapo. The Off Script Podcast. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, well known to many. He is, and when I was doing a little bit of research on him, Robin, I know you will be interested in this one as well. The Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, better known as, over in the US, they estimate that he matched the influence 
and wealth of a certain Pablo Escobar. Now, he is a pioneer. I hate using that word for someone that got up to nefarious activity, but he was a pioneer in the use of distribution cells and long-range tunnels near borders. That Mm. enabled him to export more drugs to the United States than any other trafficker in history. He is a man who was arrested, escaped from prison, arrested, and then famously, of course, built that tunnel underneath his shower block, 1.2 miles to a house in the the countryside of Mexico, and then he got away. Now, he was eventually apprehended, and it's in small part, at the very least, to this man, Michael McGowan. Let's get to it, because this story is bonkers, is what it is. How did Michael, then, a man who's infiltrated three mob families on the East Coast, there's Russian mobsters, there's biker gangs, how did he then get involved in the plot to bring down El Chapo? Yeah, so the way that happened was in 2009... I had about 22 years of service at that time. A very young, inexperienced agent came to me. Uh, I was assigned to the Boston Division at the time. A young agent came to me, and he said to me, which I thought was interesting, he said, I was told to come see you because you can come up with something devious. So apparently after 22 years in the FBI, my reputation was I could come up with something devious. And I was kind of half listening to him while I was doing some paperwork. And he said, uh, I have an informant that we can make a case against the Sinaloa cartel. And in 2009, the Sinaloa cartel, as you know, or probably know, that was the most powerful, dangerous drug trafficking organization in the world out of Mexico. Uh, So as soon as he mentioned the Sinaloa cartel, I put my paperwork down and paid strict attention And he laid out the opportunity, so he had, and again, this was a brand new agent, I believe he had two or three years on the job at the time, and he came to me saying, you know, is this something where we could do an undercover operation? And immediately, you know, my crazy mind went to work, and I listened to everything he had, and uh, after maybe three, four hours, we decided that we had a decent shot at infiltrating that cartel, which in law enforcement was unheard of because, first of all, they're based in Mexico. At the time, Chapo was a fugitive from his first escape. He was hiding in the mountains of Mexico. We knew we weren't going to be able to go into the mountains of Mexico. U.S. law enforcement is not allowed in Mexico. So we had to come up with a plan in which we could target Chapo and his organization and lure them out of Mexico. So he's overheard a plot. He's overheard a new, fresh FBI agent talking about trying to infiltrate and bring down El Chapo. That young agent has come to Michael because, as you heard there, he's devious. He's got a reputation of building these undercover kind of backstories. So then how did they set about it? So we came up with a plan in which we would be a European crime group. And I had a friend of mine who was a Sicilian-speaking undercover agent who was going to be the... the, uh, the head of the organization, El Jefe or El Viejo, the old man. And we we spent about a year setting up the plan. And again, I don't want to go too deep into the plan to give anybody thinking of doing the wrong thing any ideas. <laughs> but we basically knew that we would be challenged, we would be uh, identified or, or tried to be identified. So we had to make the the organization basically bulletproof. So it literally took us six months to a year to arrange that. We worked with foreign law enforcement partners. 
and we came up with a pretty good plan. And at the last moment, right before we were getting ready to meet with the cartel, the Sicilian speaking agent, who was close to retirement age, got a job offer and had to leave. He, he profusely apologized, but I would have done the same thing. So we were now stuck without the head of the organization, and basically I said, you know, why not? I'll take it, even though I can't speak Sicilian. I have trouble with English, but <laughs> you know, I, I uh, said, I, you know, I've done this long enough that I think I can pull this off. And starting in the in early 2010, like I said, we, we started in 2009. We had our first meeting in 2010, and we were able to meet with uh, Chapo's blood relative, a gentleman named Jesus Manuel Gutierrez Guzman. He was basically, he grew up with Chapo. He was his childhood blood relative, one of his cousins. And we started with a single meeting with him. And three years later, we eventually made a case against uh, and were able to indict Chapo, eight of his lieutenants. And we seized about 350 kilograms of cocaine in Spain. Wow. So, and when I say those three other undercovers deserve the bulk of the credit. They were the ones who had to do the day-to-day operation. I became El Viejo, the old man. I was I was the equivalent of Chapo in Europe. <laughs> so Chapo and I would communicate through Manuel. I wouldn't even talk in front of the other Sinaloa members. I would only talk to Manuel, who was talking to Chapo, and through Manuel, we would exchange messages, handwritten messages, phone messages, etc. And we basically negotiated between each other through Manuel. The bravery that would take to go into that organization and act out a scenario, a, 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 a syndicate, whatever you want to call it, when every moment you risk being exposed yeah. and you know what they do to you Absolutely. if they find you, it would not be a good way to go. The other thing I can't believe about that is that he took on the Sicilian crime boss he character, but that American accent of his, he, he said, it's hard to imagine him exactly. really embodying that. I mean, he, he must have done he, so much so preparation. Much, so much prep, he said. But the, the thing that amazes me of that, the guy that he had earmarked got a job offer, which really crystallizes and underlined, uh, underli- underlines again the fact that this is a job. Yeah. This old guy who had been worked with them for a year on being the figurehead of this quote-unquote European crime family got another job. So he left. He was close to retirement age. And Michael did say he wouldn't have blamed it. He didn't blame him for it. He would have done the same. He left. So Michael had no real choice. After a year of priming this and getting into the Sinaloa cartel, Michael had to step up. He did just that. I want to play this quick clip very quickly. How many times then did Michael... Manuel, the figurehead, the face of the Sinaloa cartel, uh, interact over the three-year period? I probably met with Manuel, I'd say, between uh, 15 and 20 times. The other undercovers, because there were other people involved, in that meeting itself, we met with the Sinaloa cartel at least 100 times, I'd say. And how? And give us an insight then, Michael. How does negotiations work? We've all seen the movies. You're sat across from one another. Few expletives are throwing out. You're trying to get a common ground. Is it like the boardroom, or is it like Donald Trump? You're fired. Is it? A, you know, give us an idea. No, again, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what they are when you get to the level of your, when you're negotiating with the top echelon of the Sinaloa cartel, it is just like sitting in. Uh, 
a board meeting at General Motors. They're very, very good at what they do. They're very intelligent. They're very uh, savvy. So we have to be as good as they are. And I was I was running an undercover team at the time, and I handpicked those other three undercovers based on my experience in working with them before because we basically had to put an all-star team up against them. And that's what I chose to do. And you got to remember, for three years, almost daily, we have to convince the Sinaloa cartel we're as bad as they are, and we're the FBI. And I tell people the one story. At one point, one of Chapo's lawyers pulled me aside during one of the multiple meetings we had, and he said, Chapo wants to compliment you on your organization. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, he wants me to tell you that your group is the most disciplined group he's ever seen, even his own. So here is Chapo basically complimenting the FBI um, on our discipline in our organization. And, and the same lawyer in the same meeting said, we'd like you to clean or launder some of our money. And that wasn't the uh, violation we were targeting. But I said, well, you know, I'll think about it. How much do you want to launder? And he said, yeah, just a little bit to start. I said, how much is a little? And he asked me to launder $500 million. So again, we turned him down because you gotta, you gotta remember when you're dealing with a group like the Sinaloa cartel, if you act like police, they're gonna sniff you out in a second. So what police agency is gonna turn down laundering $500 million? Well, we did because we had to convince them we were a crime group and not the FBI. And as I said, you know, results of what matter and we were able to indict Chapo and his his top echelon group. A lot of you getting in touch with us, a lot of you enjoying that interview with Michael McGowan who infiltrated the world of the Sinaloan cartel. I mean it's amazing that he's, you know, chatting to us about something so yeah. something that you can't even relate to. And that's that, that's I mean I couldn't even conceptualize where one would begin with how you would work on setting up a plan that would fool an agency, uh, 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 a criminal organization who are so suspicious, naturally, who yeah. are so cunning, who are so clever to fool them. You've got to be even cleverer than them. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, and so brutal as well, Rob. I mean, we've all watched Narcos, or at least the majority of us will have watched Narcos. It doesn't take you long on the internet to research some of the things that these cartels have done to individuals that step out of line. So for the fact that Michael and his team put themselves in harm's way over three years, they spent a year before that three years, for goodness sake, to build that story, that backstory that they were based in Sicily, to then put all of that together and then act it out three years down the line then lead to the apprehension of Manuel, the cousin of El Chapo, and then lead to an indictment on El Chapo himself. It's remarkable. It's unbelievable. In fact, one of our, our listeners is messaged in to say, this is insane. Does he keep a low profile nowadays? Because do does the cartel, cartel seek revenge? Can't believe they managed to play this for years. It makes you think, even after pulling off this kind of stunt, like you said, he kind of faded out into the background. Yeah. But wouldn't you be all, always looking over your shoulder, even afterwards, thinking well, you might get caught out? Well, I did ask him that. Uh, Certainly when it came to crime families, 
he said a lot of these guys it's not in the movies you'll, you'll find that in, in terms of revenge that doesn't happen all that often he said it's, it's a bit more of a, a, a kind of media construct that in terms of El Chapo uh, I mean El Chapo himself is now locked up I mean his family I know his son has taken on I think the head honcho role at the Sinaloa cartel they remain in operation I'm not quite sure they are to the scale that they once were but a, a clip that we didn't get to and we're going to podcast this up in full because there's about another hour that I had uh, with Michael on this but I've got to just tell you this quick tale because I said at the start of the interview his wife knew that he was a police officer didn't know for one second that he was liaising with the Sinaloa cartel now what he said was it was approaching his retirement after 30 plus years and he made the decision to write the book that he eventually would go on and it would get published but he said that the plan was never for that book to be published it was more his thoughts to present to his wife and his three children he had a daughter and two sons it took him two years to put it together he got uh, four binders ring binders with a whole manuscript and what he did was uh, Christmas day of 2015 he stuck the four ring binders he wrapped them up one for his wife one for his daughter and two for his two sons wrapped them up they opened them and his wife and his daughter ran off went to their bedrooms he said it was the worst Christmas ever he didn't get a Christmas dinner because they just read it from start to finish they went through the night finished it up breakfast on Boxing Day he said it was emotional time there was a lot of tears and it was his way of telling them this is what dad did this is what your husband did for a living every tale from start to finish all the different undercover operations he did including the one against the Sinaloa cartel and in there and he got a bit emotional because he talked about this is why at times dad had to answer the front door hiding a gun behind his back when it was his son's friends his daughter's friends because he was heightened the idea that I've been rumbled people are finally here to maybe kill me and in that it was very much a, a, not a love letter per se but it was him explaining this is what dad did eventually it was picked up eventually it's been published you need to get on this guys it's an incredible book I've actually purchased a copy of it because I want to read firsthand. it's called Ghost My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent incredible stuff and it would probably be more because it, he's putting himself willingly in harm's way it would more be fear out of his family's safety than, than his own safety he knows that every single day he's got the potential to, to be uncovered and therefore to be at the, 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 the mercy of these individuals but he would be fearing for the innocent people who had no clue what he was up to mm. and that would be surely something that would, would eat away at him yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had a load of messages in thank you very much for letting us know that you're enjoying it because obviously it points us in the right direction as to who we reach out to and who we try and get conversations with truly gripping certainly what Michael did in wearing that purple bathrobe as an extra little prop to fool yeah. to, to help help ca carry off that deception. Sanjay says, seems so otherworldly. Such dynamics don't exist anymore. I'm, I'm sure they still do. I'm sure people are still infiltrating criminal organizations. I'm sure these, the Sinaloa cartel, maybe it's not as big as when El Chapo was at his peak, but you've got the Tijuana cartel, yeah. you've got the Juarez cartel. That, that drugs war and that trade is still very much yeah. alive still and kicking. Still the scourge, absolutely. Whether, whether El Chapo, and that's what when you watch um, a show like Narcos on Netflix, you realise that it doesn't really matter who's in charge of it, they just keep getting replaced it's, at the top. It's the old expression, you cut the snake's head off uh, and another grows in in its place. And that's that it. is, it's an ongoing war. I mean, that mm. is El Chapo who became infamous, infamous for all that he did, but removing him, sticking him in that Colorado supermax, there is someone, and I believe it's his son in actual fact, who has risen to power and is now heading up the Sinaloa cartel. It does make you think, though, if it's just a continuous battle that is being fought. Yeah. It kind of it makes you think, where is that going? Yeah. 
You know, you disrupt, you disrupt a certain amount. You heard their, their final deal that it was a certain amount that they were expecting to apply, uh, supply Europe with for years. So, yeah. okay, yeah, you've disrupted it to an extent, but how much does that really play Impactful. out in the long run? They say in the uh, listening to this Real Narcos podcast, which talks about the, the, the downfall of Pablo Escobar, they say that the FBI agents, we, they said we wondered to ourselves amidst our celebrations when he was, when he was finally shot and killed, mm. we wondered whether the Cali cartel who eventually took over were celebrating just as much yeah. as we were. And that gnawed away at us because they, we were thinking, well, we've brought him down. Brilliant. We've been chasing him for all these years. But now some other guys are just going to slot in and do exactly what he was doing. And is the other guy who slots into his place even worse, potentially? That's it. That's it. But thank you so much. Thank you, Fahad, for getting in touch. Thank you, Dan, for your kind words as well. Niraj saying, amazing how 500 million is considered a little amount of money. Not in some quarters, that's for sure. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 